Welcome to the second hour at Standard Reason. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Greg Kokol, who is away this week and uh, getting a chance to talk to you about the things that matter most related to our Christian worldview, uh, the Christian worldview, best answers questions about how do we get here? Why is it so messed up and how do we fix it? We have all got questions about that. And if you would like to ask a question, uh, please give us a call in this hour. I'm going to be talking to you about a few things, but I'll give you some, also catch up on some business, but give me a call for any questions at 855-243-9975. 55-243-9975. I'll be happy to answer your questions. And by the way, um, lots of folks here are in the business of answering questions. We have an entire team of people who are constantly out and about in the world around us asking those questions. I bet you probably would like to see some of them live. There's a way to find out where they are going to be by simply going to our website at str.org forward slash events. str.org forward slash events. We list all the stuff that our speakers are doing there. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of events coming up right away that I want to tell you about tomorrow. That's tomorrow. Amy Hall, and today is uh, Tuesday, the 17th. So tomorrow, which is Wednesday, the 18th, uh, Amy Hall will be doing a live Q&A on our Facebook platform at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So visit our Standard Reason Facebook page and then submit your question there, uh, and Amy will answer. By the way, that's one of the best things about the short version of the, the radio show, uh, which is the STR Ask show, is that Amy gets to weigh in. And I know that uh, talking to Greg personally about this, it's like uh, Greg loves to answer those questions, but he knows what side the bread is buttered on, okay? He knows that Amy's answers are going to be awesome. So uh, if you want to just hear her answers uh, by themselves, tomorrow's time to do that Wednesday the 18th at 1 p.m. PST on the Facebook page for a Q&A on Facebook. Also, John Noyes will be live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube on uh, the week later on the 25th at 12 p.m. PST. That's Wednesday, the May 25th at 12 p.m. PST uh, for his show To The Point. And so you can visit str.org and scroll down to the bottom for links on all the social media platforms to get a chance to see John Noyes live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube on Wednesday, May 25th. Okay, very good. Now, what I want to do in this, uh, start this hour is to talk a little bit about a couple of objections that I occasionally will get that have been specific to a book I wrote called uh, Person of Interest, where I just talk about the overwhelming impact of Christianity of Jesus on culture as an evidence that he is who he said he was. Now, I know, look, a lot of that seems crazy because I've, and the premise of the book is that if you could ignore, you could lose every single New Testament document. If all of them were collected and destroyed as a thought experiment, you would not be able to eradicate Jesus from the collective memory of humans because it turns out so much of what's important to you, so much of what it is you value was formed on the basis of a Christian understanding of the world, really on the shoulders of Jesus and his followers. And you see this in literature, art, music, education, science, and even other non-Christian world religions. The impact of Jesus of Nazareth is unbelievable and unparalleled, unparalleled. So what I want to do is to be able to kind of make a case that this is a form of evidence. Now, now how could that be? If only the evidence we know about Jesus comes from the pages of the New Testament, of course, that's true. But there's a couple of claims you could make about Jesus. You could say that all that stuff in the New Testament is a lie. So Jesus is nothing more than a myth, a myth constructed from prior similarly sounding dying and rising Savior myths. But if Jesus is just a myth, why would he have this kind of impact? There are lots of other myths that don't have this kind of impact. Also, you could say he's just a man. He's just a guy who lived in the first century, a wise Jewish rabbi perhaps. Um, but but the question becomes, you know, well, why— 
do you think another, what other human in the history of humans has had the kind of impact that Jesus of Nazareth has? And if there is no other human in the history of humans that's had this kind of impact, then it's kind of hard to reason that he's just a human. The third option, if he's not a myth or a man, is that he's the Messiah. He is the God of the universe who steps back into his creation and has the kind of impact we would expect to have if he is, in fact, the Messiah. All I'm saying of those three options, the impact of Jesus seems to be more resonate better with the third option. And that's how I think in this limited way that this evidence is part of the larger collective case for the historicity and deity of Jesus. I realize that it's part of a larger collective case. Of course it is. And I'll have skeptics push back and say, well, there's other guys who have had an impact on history. Really? Do you realize that no one's had an impact on literature? No one's been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody. There are even Christ figures, screenplays written. The most viewed and translated movie in the history of movies is still the Jesus film. There are Christ figures in fiction that are based on the story of Jesus. No one has had, no one has been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. You can do this by a search in the Library of Congress. You can do it by a simple Google book search. There is no historical figure who's been written about as much as Jesus of Nazareth. Not only that, in terms of art, no one's been painted. Every master in the history of art, look at the top three masters in every ism from, you know, whatever the antiquity, Impressionism, Expressionism, Dadaism, Popism, whatever, Surrealism, whatever your ism is, search for the top three masters. Then search and see their catalog. You'll see that they've all painted Jesus, sculpted Jesus, drawn, etched Jesus. No one's been painted. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the history of literature in just the first 300 years of the common era, even non-Christian voices in antiquity speak about Jesus. In the first 300 years of the common era, you can also reassemble uh, from the art through the dark ages, you can reconstruct every episode of the gospels just in visual arts. You have to destroy those surfaces, those buildings, those statues, those locations in order to get rid of the message of Jesus. You can actually reconstruct the story of Jesus in the history of music in the first 300 years. As a matter of fact, the evolution of music, which brings it to where it is today, is largely dependent upon Christ followers who are shaping music originally for the purposes of the church and created musical notation, harmonies, major and minor scales, and most of the instruments that we see being used today. No one has been sung about as we look at the search of all the popular artists in the IMDb, uh, IMDb, uh, uh, IMDb um, database of, of all popular music, of, of Rolling Stone, of, 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 of um, you, Billboard magazine. You just get a list. Get a list of all the secular artists in the last 150 years. Compile that huge list from all those other lists and then search and see if they've sung about Jesus. You will be shocked. No one's been sung about more. By the, than Jesus of Nazareth. He's had this kind of impact on all of these. Education, all of the major, all of the modern universities as you're thinking about them today. Listen, the ancients could educate themselves, but modern universities as you're thinking about them today were formed by Christians in Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. You know, some, from those daughter universities that all of the scientists of the scientific revolution emerged. It turns out from just the writings of the science fathers, from just the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world today, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. Tell me what living human has had this kind of impact on art, literature, music, education, and science, so much so that his story can be reconstructed from the physical environments or history of those aspects of human culture. There is no one else. But I still see people who will push back and they'll say, well, look, there are other people who have an impact. For example, there are, okay, who would that be? 
Oh, there are other fictional characters. Someone actually offered Luke, Luke Skywalker as an example of this. Really, do you think you can reconstruct the story of Luke Skywalker from the history of art, music, literature, education, science, and world religions? You can do that for Jesus. I've heard people say that it, Peter Pan. Okay, so I want to just talk to you about why the what the difference is. So I just, I'll just kind of offer one quick uh, example of this before we take a call. And that is that, that the claims about Jesus are simply not the same as claims about other uh, figures or, or fictional characters, for sure. These are not like fictional claims. And, the, and, and the, looking at Peter Pan is a good example of why these are different. So when I was a skeptic, and I was somebody who was investigating Christianity, at, you know, 25 years ago for the first time, having no background in Christianity. Uh, you know, my philosophical naturalism, I was a committed philosophical naturalist. And that dictated that um, I was not going to be willing to accept certain kinds of claims from the biblical authors. I just wasn't. As I was investigating those accounts, you know, I recognized that many of the locations and the historical claims, they, they could, sure, they could be corroborated by archaeology. But that didn't incline me to believe the gospel accounts were true. Even though some of these claims could be corroborated with archaeology, especially when it came to their claims about supernatural activity, especially the resurrection. You know, I would have said the mere fact that an account is rooted in some form of true history doesn't mean that everything in the account is accurate or true. So I'll give you an example of this. When the, the Scottish novelist and playwright, you know, J.M. Uh, Barry, that's the guy or that's the author, rather, I should say, that, that wrote the fictional story of Peter Pan. Now, he set the account in the late um, Victorian period in London, okay? So that's the setting for the account. Now, a thousand years from now, this is a thought experiment. A thousand years from now, remember I talked about the thought experiment I talked about in person of interest. So here's another thought experiment. Let's say a thousand years from now, archaeologists find um, archaeological evidence that confirms the existence of London, okay? And, and they might even find an ancient account from other writers, let's say, that describe um, uh Peter Pan, to describe the story of Peter Pan. So now they have evidence of London, and they have ancient accounts of Peter Pan. But but the archaeological or the manuscript support that confirms the Peter, uh, you know, a portion of Pan's story, right? Because it occurs in London in this setting we know as Victorian London. Okay, that doesn't guarantee the authenticity of the entire account. You might have some things that are true about the Peter Pan account, given the geography, the true existence of London. Let's say. But even if you could do that, that doesn't corroborate the true existence of Peter and Wendy and Tinkerbell and the Lost Boys. I mean, you know, again, even though I discover archaeological support for some of the claims of the Gospels, I would have said the same thing. So you can have claims in the Gospels that are are, are supported by the by, but the supernatural stuff. No, I'm not going to reject those. You know, but so I I, I knew I was going to have to move beyond as I was examining the Gospels. Just move beyond the simple archaeology to investigate the authors themselves. And this is why I did that whole thing with all I talk about in cold case Christianity. But once I was done, I realized that the claims about Jesus, I, I kind of thought they were probably more fiction, like the claims about Peter Pan. Sure. There were some geographic locations that they were rooted. The fiction was rooted in, but it's not, it's, it's still just fiction, but there are some differences. And I want to offer you the differences because it illustrates why Jesus is not an act of fiction. First, First difference, the authors of the Gospels, they claim to be eyewitnesses. There's there's a difference between the authors of the Gospels and J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan. Barry never wrote the story as a true claim. He never claimed it was a true history, uh, and he never claimed to be a, a, an eyewitness of this true history. Um, 
he, he wrote it first. Well, to be honest, he first wrote the character of Peter Pan in a small section of a of a um, um, a little novel called The Little White Bird. That's about 1902. So then he later adapted that character into the larger, um, basically to a stage play, and that ended up becoming um, this this thing we now know as Peter Pan. And but all that time writing either the small piece for the for the book and then writing the stage play, stage play. He he never claimed to be writing history as an eyewitness. But the author the author of the Gospels rather, they, on the other hand, they always claimed to have been. I, you see this in Second Peter, for example, Second Peter one, uh, verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his magic. Very different than Barry. He is not claiming to be an eyewitness. The gospel authors are. John in 1 John 1 and then verses 1 and 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you also. And gospel of John even ends this way in chapter 21. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and who wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So what you have here is a very different approach from the get-go because the authors are saying, hey, if it isn't, if we aren't, I would, we're lying then. Barry is telling you from the beginning that he's lying. <laughs> you know, he's, he's pretending. He's creating a fiction. That's a big difference. Second difference, the authors of the Gospels can be tested. And this is what I tried to do in Cold Case Christianity. They, they, they can be tested for their reliability. There's that four-part template we've talked about in the past. Were they there to see what they said they saw? Could they be corroborated in some way? Have they changed their story over time? And do they have a bias that would cause them to lie to us? That is what we do to test reliability. And if we apply that four-part template to J.M. Barry. Well, guess what's going to happen? He's he's going to be quickly exposed as the author of fiction, which, by the way, shouldn't surprise you because he tells us he's the author of fiction. But when we apply that investigative template to the authors of the Gospels, we get a different result. They, they actually survive remarkably well as reliable eyewitnesses, especially when you compare them to other ancient historians of antiquity. So I've written all about that in Cold Case Christianity, but, but that's, that, that is the difference, a, a huge difference. Number one... He doesn't claim to be a, an eyewitness. And number two, he if you examined Barry, he would fall apart pretty quickly under that template we use to examine eyewitnesses. Let me give you one more way. that The authors of the Gospels died as eyewitnesses. That's a big difference. J.M. Barry and his publishers, they profited from the story of Peter in a number of ways, right? I mean, the authors of the Gospels didn't quite get that kind of... <laughs> prophet. As a matter of fact, the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus died for their claims. And they didn't really budge in any way on their... Look, you and I might be willing to die for what we believe is true about Christianity. That would have no evidential value. But when the... You know why? Because we don't know. Lots of people will die for what they think is the truth, but they don't know is a lie. But these guys, they would have known if it was a lie. Yet in mass, they never recant. There is no ancient record of any of them ever changing their story. Instead, there's record after record of each of them being willing to die for what they saw. That's very different. The history of martyrdom should show you the difference between uh, somebody who's writing fiction and somebody who's willing to, even like Pliny the Younger, uh, he, he writes to Emperor Trajan, and he talks about what was happening to Christians who were holding on to their story and refusing to change. 
So I think that's one of the biggest differences, right? Number one, that they uh, never – Perry never claimed to be an eyewitness. He never obviously um, – he can't, can't be survived the scrutiny of eyewitness testimony and then was not willing to die for his claims about Peter Pan. So uh, that's those are three differences and three ways that I would look at these two claims and recognize that there's a difference between Barry and the Gospels of the uh, the authors of the Gospels. The, the case for the reliability of the Gospels is built on far more than simple archaeological support. It's built on that cumulative case that we talked about on the four legs of reliability. And if you applied that to any fictional character or any claim about a fictional character. Even theistic claims, like if you apply this to Mormonism in the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, they don't hold up. Important difference. Now, I've kind of gone a little bit over my time. I'm not actually stop, not too bad. I'm about, almost right on time. So we'll take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll go to our phone calls. You can call us right now if you want to join the conversation at 855-243-9975. Remember, the story of Jesus is not a fiction, and it can be tested for the reliable uh, historical claim that it is. That should give us great confidence. Call me with your questions and comments, 855-243-9975. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group, helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email oceanwilson at ocean at str.org. Jay Warren Wallace sitting in for Greg Kolkel, wrapping up a second hour. We'll just take a couple of phone calls. If you want to hop in the queue and extend our show, please do that, 855-243-9975. In the meantime, though, before we go anywhere, let's let's uh, take a phone call from David in Oregon. David, thanks so much for calling. Uh, hey, Jim. Nice to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Um, I haven't talked to you since uh, going to church in your garage once. Oh, that's back. awesome! Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad. I'm glad that yeah, those days of of house churching. I guess you know I don't want to call it a house church, but it really was right. But the idea was um, for a number of years, I uh, held a group in my in my home that I co- would call free church. <laughs> so, if right. you're in Southern California, you you and you know that the the cost of 
of doing church is not small and you have mortgages and budgets and, and everything's ridiculously expensive here in Southern California. And I knew that if we wanted to yeah. do church the way that, that we thought we were called to do it, we would have to eliminate the costs. So how could we do it where there's no staff, no paid staff, no, no mortgage? Well, you're really kind of limited. So we right. blew out our garage and put in 50 chairs and we knew we could never have more than 50, but we did have 50 for about six years. So I was glad to do it. Anyway, uh, good to talk to you, David. I'm, I need to get to see you. So, but uh, I'm glad you're calling. Yeah. Um, so my situation is my son. Um, he recently came out as bisexual, um, and when he first told me, I, I, I didn't. I just kind of thought, okay, you're in a heterosexual relationship, so really, in a sense, it doesn't matter at this point. But that was in the back of my mind, but. Um, recently he has been, um, hitting me with questions. Um, you know, I've told him from the beginning that I love him no matter what. I will never, he will never stop being my son and I will always be there for him. But he, he's lately been pushing me, asking me things like, well, what if I was in a relationship with a man, you know? Would you be happy for me? And, and I always have to pause and he knows that I'm, it's a, it's a difficult question for me to answer. Um, so recently he gave me um, a book to read, uh, God and the Gay Christian, by uh, Matthew Vines. Um, I, I looked into the book. I, I'd heard uh, Greg talk about Matthew Vines recently and some podcasts I'd listened to from the past. So I, I was a little bit familiar with him and the Reformation Project, so... I wasn't caught completely off guard, and mm. I did know that he had been hearing some of those things um, from the progressive Christian side. Um, so, my son, he he struggles badly with um, really chronic depression, and one of the things that I know that whenever I've seen him with his friends, um, interacting with them, doing the things that him and his friends do. I mean, they're of age to drink, and whenever, you know, they would be there drinking, I would be thinking, okay, he's not depressed, he's with his friends, he's happy, I'm happy he's happy, even though, you know, he's doing what he's doing. Um, so in my, in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a middle ground with him where I don't have to acquiesce my faith and what I feel about the scriptures and what they teach. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, you know, if he decides to be with somebody who's the same sex, you know, I would, as a parent, separating my, my, I mean, my faith, I guess, thinking as a parent only, I would be happy that he would be happy and not depressed and wanting to kill himself, which he does struggle with those thoughts. And I just, um, I'm just wondering, would that be, um, a, uh, a contradiction in, in, in my faith? Is it like, am I going against my Christian values by separating it like that just so that he can feel like I will accept him no matter what? even though I do love him no matter what I've told him that, like I said, 
but it just seems like he's not, it's not enough for him. So I'm trying to find some middle ground here. David, how old is your son? He's 23. Okay. Okay, a couple of things. Uh, first, I want to make a couple of recommendations for sources before I kind of give my own thoughts on this. Um, the issue, there's a, you know, who's done a lot of work on Matthew Vines is Sean McDowell. Uh, he's got a new book that you should get, uh, but Sean's also got a video online in which he interacts in a conversation with Matthew Vines on, um, I think it was oh. at Greg's, I think it was at Greg's church uh, in Thousand Oaks, but I want you to watch that video. Part of the problem, part yeah. of the question is, is what is what is true? You said what I feel about the scriptures. Well, I, I don't, I don't even trust what I feel about the scriptures. It, it, the question is, what does the scriptures say? And we have a duty not because I'm, I'm more than likely whatever the scriptures say on a number of issues, I may never be comfortable with because I'm a fallen human who has to, wants to chase my own desires, my own passions. The scriptures are often saying things to me that are uncomfortable. And so yeah. my feelings about the scripture are never going to be as important as what is true. What are the true claims of scripture? So I think that's right. one of the things we got to be careful about, right? But Matthew Vines has been, you know, that whole Reformation Project thing is, is something that you should look at. Sean's work on this, his new book also talks about uh, sex and relationships, and and I think the two together will be would be good. Also on the issue of of homosexuality, let's say, or bisexuality, but. Uh, a lot of folks who work with us here at Standard Reason who have been doing talks with us at the reality conferences like um, Beckett Cook, great sources of information. He's got a pretty robust YouTube channel. Christopher Yuan, great books, both uh, tracing his own experience and uh, tracing the theological underpinnings, the kind of arguments, the theological case for uh, kind of a holy sexuality. Um, so those two authors, Christopher Yuan and Beckett Cook, are worth reading. Not because you're going to point these as tools, as weapons you're going to leverage against your son. That's not what we do this for. But you have to have right. clear thinking first before you can engage your kids, your own son, with this issue. We have a tendency to want to say, okay, I found someone you should watch. Uh, which is might, there might be an occasion for that. You might they might have an opportunity to, to do that. Maybe there'll be a time when he'd be willing to watch somebody who's uh, either engaged the struggle or engaged the issues personally. That's fine. But a lot of it is just you and I needing to understand what the what the underlying motivations are, what the experience has been for people who maybe are ten years ahead of your son. And that's why these kinds of resources like Beckett Cook, like Christopher Yuan, are helpful because they at least uh, open our eyes to what is downstream a little bit. The other issue I would say is that when it comes to um, you, it's, it, yes, you look. We talked about this, I think, in the first um, hour. But that it's possible as fallen humans to corrupt every system. We because the the problem is humans. So so if I yeah. wanted to make a case for X from Scripture, which is diametrically opposed to the case for A, well, this is why this this this, this class we're doing at, at Standard Reason on biblical hermeneutics is so important. Because it turns out it's it's poor hermeneutics that allow us to make the kinds of claims that a lot of us in the progressive, a lot of Christian, I'm not calling Christians, it depends on where you are and what your beliefs are. We can call ourselves Christians, but if we don't believe the claims of Scripture or if we try using poor hermeneutics to conform the teaching of Scripture to our preferences or what the culture prefers, well, then we're not really even doing Christianity anymore. We're, we're, we're doing something we're calling Christianity, but it, by definition, it's not, it doesn't, if I reject the teaching of Jesus, it's kind of hard to call me a Jesus follower. 
Or if I've got to contort, right. the, 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 I might be a Jesus admirer, or there's something about Jesus I admire, but I end up being more of a redactor and um, than I am a, a follower. I don't want to be a Jesus redactor or just a Jesus admirer. I want to follow the teaching of Jesus. But sometimes helping our, but look, in the end, what drives our, sometimes we have this desire, this this, this fallen desire, and then we're just looking for some theologian who will help us um be comfortable with our fallen, find a way to, to make it work. I, I suspect he'd be happy if you weren't a Christian. He'd just fall away from this altogether. He's trying to make this work to satisfy you or to satisfy the people in his life who still matter to him. And as a parent, here's what I would say, and this is one thing I want to challenge you on. Like um, I was going to use it as an example, but you actually provided it for me before I could bring it up. And that is that if he told you, you know, I, I'm, I don't use it often, but and I but I do use it consistently. But not I, I, occasionally I'll use heroin, and it makes me really happy. The days I'm using heroin, I am really happy. Would it make you happy that your son is using heroin? Well, no, it wouldn't. The days I'm drinking with my friends, I'm pretty happy on those days. But I think as parents, we are more concerned about eternity, about the things that are good for you in the long run. The, yeah. the temporary stuff is just temporary, and it actually exacerbates the problem. It, it actually does. And the reason why you find yourself doing those temporary things to make you happy, like drinking or like doing heroin, is because you're trying to avoid the reality that you actually still struggle with, that you still find disturbing, that you still feel right. like, I could only be happy if I can drink my way through this. Well, why? Because you know that without that, the situation you're in, and as parents, what we want to be able to do is to say, well, look, I am interested in um, something for you, and it's not your happiness. I'm interested in your right. holiness because what's good for you, which will, what will help you to flourish, is not your pursuit of happiness. It's that pursuit of holiness. Because if the Christian worldview is true, and I don't just believe this because, okay, the Bible says it, therefore I believe it. It's that I have good reason to believe the resurrection occurred. And if Jesus rose from the grave, his, he's authoritative. Silly me, if you arise out of the tomb, I'm likely to listen to you. And what he teaches about how we ought to live has different authorities, not just another ancient wise sage like Baha'u'llah or Buddha. He's the God of the universe that demonstrated this. Now, that's why I listened to him. And it turns out that there are times when um, the love that we think about in terms of love, we, we often think about kind of like in a Hollywood sense, do we love our kids? Well, we kind of do it. Are they happy? We want to make them happy. Well, there's a thing that all parents know, you know it too. It's called tough love. It's the love yeah. of the father that says, if you, you, you can take, you can have this attitude and take your inheritance and leave. And I'm not going to chase you. You already know what's right. You already know what to do. And at some point, you will come to the end of yourself. And you'll remember whose son you really are. And when that happens, you'll come back. You won't find me chasing you a lot because I've already taught you what I need to teach you. And I just need you to, to run yourself out. This is the story of the prodigal son. That, that his identity, he tried to find his identity and his desires. And that a search for identity, I think identity, we are the identity generation right now. I think identity is how most people determine what is true. It's not based on, but what are the facts for this? 
It's not even based on am I having a good experience. It's based on do I want to wear the T-shirt? How do I want to identify? And and this son decides that he, he pretends like his dad is dead. Like, give me your inheritance now, which is usually you get when you die. I'd rather, I'm going to pretend like you're dead. I'm going to take your money. and I'm going to go live my – I'm going to form my own identity. And it's not until he runs through all of that and sees the futility of that that he begins to think about whose son he really is. And right. that's where, and what does his son, his father do when he gets back is he gives him the signet, that ring. He puts the family name back on him. And so his identity yeah. is once again in the father. And and so I think what we have to do as loving parents is to to teach all that we're to teach and and not pray for my son's happiness, but to pray for my son's holiness because your happiness isn't, isn't, what leads you back to the cross anyway. It's a desire for holiness, right? That leads you to the cross. It's a recognition of your own fallen nature and your own sin. So, so I, I is, you're always going to love your son. You're going to love him and speak the truth as kindly as you can. And guess what? It's going to sound very offensive. I don't care how you say it. I don't care how you wrap it. You can love him and do things for him. He's at some point wants to chase his own fallen passions. Um, yeah. What I love about Beckett Cook's story is that he talks about coming to the end of that and how he had to get to the end of it. And then by the chance he encounters a Christian group at a coffee shop who invite him to church, but he had to come to the end of himself before he was ready to hear that in the, in the, in the shop. So yeah. it's a prodigal son story, right? He has to get to the end of himself before he realizes, you know, um, there are people in yeah. my father's family who, who are treated better than I am treating myself right now. Um, and that's really the story. So I think what I would say to you is that, yeah, it, it, I want the, you want the best for your son. And it turns out the best for your son is not his temporary happiness. Um, the best for your son is his eternal holiness. And I think that God doesn't care about our comfort. He cares about our character. He doesn't give a lick about your, look, if the Christian worldview is true, Life is not a line segment that starts at birth and ends at death. That's one form of geometry. Life is a ray. It starts at birth. It goes through the point called death into eternity. And if God, if, if the Christian worldview is true, your life and happiness in your life is not to be measured between the two dots. It's the entire ray is your life. So, so what makes you happy between the two dots is not always what makes you holy for the entire ray. And God doesn't care. He cares about things that are lasting. He doesn't care about things that are temporary. God's an eternal being. He cares about eternity. And as a father, he wants to love us into eternity. And as a father on earth, I want to set the stage for that. And it's because the scripture describes the world the way it really is. That it also describes a world in which we as created humans can best thrive. And and I I've said to my friends who um who were homosexual and now they are they they they're basically are just in a period of abstinence where they're like hey I, I still struggle with same sex attraction but I know that I want to live this way as a Christian my prayer is that they will find a spouse a woman who will marry them because I actually think that it's in the context of that that we thrive as well as part of the thriving mechanism. And so I think that yeah. my prayers for your son are that he will eventually, um, in a marriage 
uh, uh, between a man and a woman be in the image of God and be shaped by that marriage. And that is how God intends for us to thrive. I know people, though, who are single, and they are married to the cause of Christ. This is Paul's alternative. He says, if you're not married to a, someone of the opposite sex, you need to be married to, to to your ministry work, right? There are people who are not hindered by their marriage. They're able to do things they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. But it's in right. the context of your marriage relationship, either in the marriage of ministry or the marriage of of, of, of your wife or your husband, in which you are shaped. And why is that? It's because, David, we are so different, equally valuable, but very different from our spouses. And because yeah. we are so different, it's that shaping that constantly, it's that it's the bending our knee to conforming to it. Together, we are two sides of the same coin. We're not the same side of the same coin. We're two different sides of the same coin. And, and that's part of what I, I would, I want for my own kids. And it's not because I want this because I'm some Bible-thumping, rigid fundamentalist who will not move from this antiquated view from the Scriptures. It's that I believe that the Bible describes the world the way it really is and that God has our best in mind. But he's not looking at our temporary happiness between the two dots. He's looking at the entire array. And that's what he wants for us. So that means we're going to have to show our kids love that's aimed at eternity, not love that's aimed at temporary happiness. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I really needed to hear that, Jim. Yeah, good to talk to you, David. I know this is a struggle, and our prayers, my prayers, are for you as a dad to, to know what to do. That and My struggle in all of this is what can we say that will not further alienate our kids from the gospel? Like, I'm, I'm not—I I fear that I'm going to say something—I don't want to be the ugly reason why people reject a beautiful gospel. So right. for me, it's constantly trying to figure out how can I not be ugly um, and make the gospel something it isn't, when in fact it is God's yeah. plan for us to bring bring us home and to, for us to thrive until we get there. Well, what's the name of that book that you said about that Sean did? Um, I'm looking for it right now, and of course now I'm going to be. This is, this is always great. I always think it's great radio when when somebody spends time <laughs> looking for a resource. But hang on, I'm going to have it here in a second. I'll get it for you. I should know this, but you know what? So this is the old. I always blame COVID. Now this is COVID fog, but it, it really is just me being an old guy. Uh, it's, it's his latest book, and here it is. It is called uh, Oh gosh, Chasing Love. It's a, a, a okay. subtitle is it's a good book. It's um, subtitle is Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. So that's uh, that's worth getting. That and also sure. his 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 video online where he's, I think he's at Greg's church having an interaction with uh, Matthew Vines on this because uh, it's biblical. It's really about are, are these claims and trying to support these claims, pro homosexual claims from Scripture, valid, or are you having to do something where you're twisting the hermeneutic? Oh, by the way, Greg's done a lot of great work on this too, and it's all available at str.org. If what you're trying to do is at least settle in your own mind. Again, I don't know that you that you have you have to. It's a little bit more difficult, okay? Um, uh, and, and Amy just texted me that she's going to put a link to the discussion with Matthew and uh, Sean in the uh, show notes, so you'll have it here oh. in the show notes here, so you'll build a link to it. But but I, I think that's always the, the struggle. The struggle is about trying to you know to, to, to what what can I say? It's not as though sometimes I've got a certain silver bullet series of statements I can make to my kids that will always convince them that what they're doing is right or wrong or whatever. A lot of this is something you need to have confidence in first. So if nothing else.
else, these kinds of resources will help you to know what's true. Because what I hear in your voice is that you're now starting to wonder, can I just shift my view? Can as a Christian, can I just shift my view to match my sons and then everyone's going to be happy? Well, it's tougher than that, right? It's that it's what Jesus predicted, that you are going to be insulted and persecuted and falsely accused of all kinds of evil because of him. His views yeah. are not the kinds of views you can conform to whatever culture teaches. Instead, these are the kinds of views of holiness that when a fallen world hears them, they are instantly offended. So, so what we have to do instead is to not focus on whether we can make these palatable, but can we be faithful in the opposition? Can we be faithful when we're not popular? And so there'll be a season in which you love your kids, love your kids, you say the unpopular things. I'm sure that that prodigal son probably had arguments with his dad before he decided to take the inheritance and go find a, a form a new identity. But the door was still open yeah, and he was able to come home. So we have to leave the door open and speak the truth. Awesome. Thank you. Jim. All right, I brother. Yep. It. Yep. I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you calling. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. That is going. We're going to wrap a few minutes early since I don't have any other callers in the queue. I so appreciate the fact that you hung with us on that important question. And we'll get a chance to come back here next week. Be here for Robbie. He's going to be doing a great interview of Titus Kennedy. You are not going to want to miss it. Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for you this week for Greg Kogel. I'll see you back here.